welcome to Postcards from Antioch, a teaching and training podcast provided by Barton Church. I'm Oz, your host, and today we're with Nicole, who will be taking us through the topic of how the Bible was formed and considering what it, what the canon is and composition of the Bible. So first of all, hello, Nicole. Hi, Oz. It's, uh, yeah, great to be talking about this with you today. Um, I'm, I'm quite excited. I love like this kind of history thing um so yeah this for me is a really interesting topic how are you feeling when you say the words canon and composition of the bible well it kind of comes across a little bit meaty doesn't it and academic Mm. but uh, Mm -hmm. i know that we've had in the past some great discussions on this so i'm feeling yeah mildly excited if not uh, keen to learn from you nicole (laughs) because i know you're a good student in this area Mm, I do love history. Okay, so let's let's dive straight in. And I'm actually going to start with uh, maybe a slightly weird question. But Oz, I'd really love it if you could just describe what the Bible is, because we often take it for granted. You know, it's the Bible. But what actually is, yeah, what's the Bible? I'm putting him on the spot the here, guys. Wow. This is why uh, he's, he's having to process and, and think, yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to go for it. The, the Bible is a, a collection of books that make up um, a great deposit, as it were, of uh, God-inspired uh, teaching, narrative, songs, accounts, all about uh, the promised Messiah Jesus. And so for the Christian, the Bible is is where we go to, to, uh, to meet with God, to find out who he is, his character, his plan, his purposes and uh, meet with Jesus really so it's a place we go to learn about God to grow in relationship with God and to feed ourselves as it were um, to grow in our faith in in our understanding so that we know how to live our life in today's culture and society which is hugely different to the Bible times but the truths are, are universal and the teaching it contains I suppose the Holy Spirit has inspired scripture, the Bible, and then helps us to understand and live it out. There's yeah, a quick that's... answer. I don't know what you think about that. <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, yeah, I I would definitely agree with uh, all of what you said. And I've definitely, yeah, had picked out those points in case you didn't mention them. Uh, the other thing I'd add is that the thing I love about the Bible is that it is, um yeah as you said a collection of books but these these books span like thousands and thousands of years this is the story of how god has been relating to his people relating to humanity um yeah throughout history throughout different cultures um and for me that that historical element of of being able to see time and time again how god is working in history is is also really a key point for me um i'd really love it if you could uh grab your bible oz is that all right oh sorry (laughs) Yep, I've got it. Excellent. Um, And we're going to just quickly read 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, read. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Mm. So that's, I mean, pretty much what? you were saying, um, which I'm assuming where you got some of your answer from, and it's not the other way around. Um, Yeah, so we have this, uh, yeah, this, this passage that kind of just talks about how 
the Bible is is God breathed and how it is yeah, it's useful for our lives. It has a, it has an impact. Um, I mean, technically here, Paul is probably referring to the Hebrew Bible, um, or perhaps even the Septuagint, which we're going to talk about. Um, but it's so applicable for for all of it, isn't it? All of the writings uh, that we have. So yeah, this is something that has an impact. And and hold on to that thought because we're going to bring that back in later, as long as I remember to bring it back in later. Um, yeah, so hold on to that. Will do definitely, and so yeah, you're going to explain a bit about what how the Bible was formed, the canon, what that means. These different words that get popped around in Christian conversations often they that we might mean different things. So yeah, I'm interested to hear how you how you explain some of those. Yeah, okay. So let's start off. So we're using the word composition and the word canon. We're going to be using them quite a lot, but it's just, yeah, the fancy way of saying how the Bible was formed, um, what uh, what is it about these particular works that make people think, yes, this is God's God's word. Um, if you want a bit more of a definition of canon, um, a scholar called McGrath um, says that it indicates the limits that have been set by the consensus of the Christian community. Uh, say canon are the books that are considered authoritative and inspired by God. And really, really importantly here, um, a scholar called Tenney, he writes that the church did not determine the canon, it recognises the canon. So it's not that we have decided, oh, these are from God, but instead we've recognised that this this is from God. So why does it matter how the Bible was formed, or perhaps does it matter? And I'm going to actually put you on the spot here again, Oz, because I think this is really important to uh, just to discuss before we actually jump into a bit more history, a bit more nitty gritty. So yeah, does it matter how the Bible was formed? Does it? Does Yeah. Why? Why does it matter? Yeah, I think that's such an important question, Nicole, because as, as Christians, we wanted to be confident in what the Bible says, and therefore the way it's formed gives us confidence in, in the trustworthiness, the reliability, because if the God that is described um, by by unreliable sources, then then that impacts the God that is described. The, the revel- revelation of God is under question. So I think it matters at a at a level of integrity as a ho- historical document, but also as an implication for how we put our faith in in the God of the Bible and the the Christ who came to to die and bring salvation for a a, a sinful broken world. So yeah, definitely it matters. We we need to ask the right questions of the words of the Bible, the the books of the Bible, the the way that we understand it being inspired but also penned by men um in the past in the distant past sometimes. So our confidence I guess would be how I primarily summarize that yeah no i i completely agree like i mean the bible is where we get the majority of our knowledge of god isn't it it's it's the way uh, he speaks to us and it's it's what we use um i guess as as a, a test of our own personal experience from god because we we hold the bible to be authoritative um and we we yeah test our experience of god to make sure that it is is matching the bible like, to make sure we're holding to that that truth um and therefore i think it's really important that yeah we have confidence in it as you're saying that we um we know that it's true and i think just it's helpful to be informed um i know that i found that actually in my conversations with uh 
maybe non-Christians, people who, who don't believe in the authoritative word of God in the Bible. Um, and actually, quite often, I've had people throw things about, well, what about the Gnostic Gospels? Do they count? And it wasn't it wasn't like written by that person. Like, we can't trust who, that the author is really the author. Um, and actually, I find it is really helpful, kind of as you're saying, to know a little bit about the reliability, to know how it was formed um, so we can have confidence in yeah what we're saying what we're trusting in and um yeah because I, I think also, otherwise oh, yeah. I was mm. going to say otherwise the tendency is to think well Christians they're they're not really engaging their mind it's all about their experience they're calling this thing prayer something that makes mm. a difference they're going to their sacred book which isn't really a historically reliable document in it and it's all about the subjective experience of the Christian and singing songs it's like a uh, an experiential drug or something, you know. Um, but we we're saying no. Actually, our faith isn't based only on that. It's based on yes, experience, but actually rooted on a reasonable faith with a foundation. So yeah, I think that's such an important thing to grasp, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And we're going to do. I think my next um, my next podcast is going to be on the reliability and accuracy. Um, so we're going to look into that in a lot more depth. Um, so I'm just going to pop the reliability side, uh, well, pop the reliability to one side um, as well. But do hold that in in your mind, yeah, as we're we're talking about this, because these two subjects do just link together. So I want to start off by saying actually that sometimes we have this tendency to think of the authors of the Bible as maybe sitting down. Um, I mean, for me, it's always sitting down. They could be standing, but they're kind of sitting down and God's spirit or the Holy Spirit comes on them. They go into some, I don't know, trance. They have a vision and they just write it down. And it's kind of like God has implanted uh, his message into their brain. Um, And this is called mechanical inspiration. And is possibly the case for some some of the texts, some of the passages that we see in uh, the Bible. But what I really want to stress here is that this is not the typical case. This is not um, how the Bible was formed. It's not how it was um, put together for the majority of cases. Now, when we start to look into it, it's actually a lot more of an organic process. So we have books that aren't recognised, or we have works that aren't recognised immediately by God's people as being God's word, um, or at least there's not a consensus that this is God's word straight away. Uh, We have um, arguments for group composition, so works that are attributed to um, a name or uh, yeah, a, a single work that have been written by lots of different people speaking into it. Um, this is actually possibly the case for Paul's letters. There's evidence to suggest that he didn't write them alone, that actually it was a group of people working together. And we're, we're going to talk about that a bit later. Um, there's also arguments that these um, these books were put together using older sources. And even if you just think about the order that the Bible is in, like we humans have have put it in the order we have it in today they the the books the works aren't included in the order that they're written and um, editors have made choices about what order they should go in so what i'm hoping you're picking up here is that actually there's quite a lot of um like human agency in this like humans are involved in writing the bible um and putting it together and it's not just God, yeah, transplanting it, trend like giving it on tablets of stone. Here you go, sorted, sure. finished. Um, 
Yeah. Wow, that's and, really interesting, isn't it? Because mm. that, that's kind of pointing towards a God who inspires yet also works through his creation, humanity, people with our minds and intellects and uh, the, the benefit of a number of other voices in. So, yeah, that, that shows something about how God relates to us, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that is one of my, I think, key arguments as to why this is, uh, why looking at the composition, how the Bible is formed is so important because it reveals more about the nature of God and how he chooses to work with us. Um, and far from this human interaction being a problem, um, it doesn't make the Bible any less holy, any more divinely inspired, any less the word of God. Um, in fact, Horton describes uh, the process is something like this. So if the eternal son could become fully human without sin, then surely God can communicate his truth through human ambassadors while preserving their writings from error. And I just think that sums it up perfectly. Actually, the human agency, the human interaction with God's word is something to be celebrated um, and not shied away from. It doesn't yeah, disprove anything. It's something that's really, really cool. Wow. No, I think that's an amazing reminder, isn't it? So we've got this understanding then that, that God has inspired humans to record um, the law, the historical events of the period of the nation of Israel. We know about the Psalms, the, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. But how, how did it actually start? You know, how do we get from, from that bigger concept of, of God communicating or, or inspiring human authors to what we have now, the um, the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 in the New. How was the Old Testament, let's start with the Hebrew Bible, um, formed? Yeah, that's, that's a great, great place to start. So, um, yeah, the Hebrew Bible. It is known as the Tanakh, which I'm right, I'm just going to throw this out here because I've done a lot of reading on this uh, subject. However, the, the books don't tell you how to pronounce things. Um, so Oz, if at any point you're like, mm, that is definitely not right, do jump in because my Hebrew is, well, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, the Hebrew Bible also known as is the Tanakh, that is the, the Hebrew word for it. And it is made up of the law, the prophets and the writing. So here we go, the Torah, the Navim and the I'm going to go with Ketuvim, but there are probably some... Attempt, Nicole. Well done. I, I actually <laughs> did one module of Hebrew, so I'm not going to pretend that I'm a Hebrew scholar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. So we've, we've got these, uh, yeah, these writings, the law, the prophets, and the other writings. And there's a huge mixture of composition methods of, of way that these were put together. So we do have some dictation. Um, some work talks about literally, thus says the Lord, um, or on this day, the, the word of the God, uh, the word of God came to me. And we can kind of assume that there is an element of dictation here, that, that people are writing it down. Um, and that, uh, what God has said, like, simple. Um, and we also have work that is considered um, canonical, which just as a side point, canonical is my favourite word to say, it just was great. Um, so some work is considered canonical, uh, more or less straight away. So, uh, Oz, could you read Jeremiah 26, 17 to 19 for me? If you've got the Bible there still. Yep. Okay. Jeremiah 6, 17. Oh, 20, to 26. I hope 
So Jeremiah 26. Yeah. And the verses again? 17 to 19. Okay, here we are. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Micah of Moshareth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overground, overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favour? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. Thank you. That's great. So what you have here is an example of, um, yeah, about less than 100 years after Micah was writing, Jeremiah is is saying, look, the people have accepted this as as authoritative like it's from God like Micah said these words and we saw it in history in the time of uh, Hezekiah and and he's using that um yeah to speak to his contemporary audience and a hundred years it sounds like quite a lot but actually for something to be considered like divinely inspired divine word of God that's actually very quick because that it shows that um not only has it been written and, and considered by a few but actually it's it's the elders of the people I think who are who are using it this is something that has is widespread um widespreadly that's not a word but it's it's accepted quite um on quite a widespread basis um and we see actually more examples of that so we've got Daniel reading from Jeremiah's work in in Daniel 9 um, and actually, yeah, using some of the God's words in Jeremiah to um, give himself hope for the fate of the exiles. So we have these examples of of work that we can say with a lot of certainty, oh, yeah, they were considered divinely inspired straight away. Um, and then you have books like Esther, which is, is a very interesting book, but actually wasn't necessarily considered to be um part of the canon was people weren't sure whether that was uh god's word whether it was divinely inspired for for quite a while um i think yeah even like towards the end of of when the jews had gone back to jerusalem after the exile like for hundreds of years there was still this debate about whether esther should be included so it's, it's a bit of a mix um Okay, so how then, so moving away from like whether it was recognised as God's word straight away or not, um, how then are these works put together? Now, as we said, some of it's dictation, um, but there's actually evidence that some work is compiled at a later date using earlier sources. Now, I'm not going to go through every single one because obviously people have written books and books and books on how the individual works that are written. We do not have time. Um, but I just want to highlight a couple of bits and pieces. Um, so, Oz, could you read Proverbs, turn to Proverbs 25 um, and read verse one for me? Sure. And you might need to read, you know, there's often like a little inscription that's not technically yep. part of the verse, you might need to read that for these next ones that I'm going to mention. Okay, so Proverbs 25, verse 1. Yeah. These are more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Fantastic. I'm going to stop you there, because that's all I want. Um, so no what we've got here is, is Hezekiah, who is writing 
a good couple of hundred years, I think, after Solomon. Um, and and he what he's done is he's compiled, he's taken the writings that they have of Solomon and he's he's put it into pro- Proverbs now. Okay, so can you now turn to 30, Proverbs 30, and, and just read that same little inscription bit again for me. The sayings of Agar, son of Jekah, an inspired utterance. This man's utterance to Ithiel. Oh, thank you. Um, and okay, so in this case, we've got um, a completely different writer called, just remind me again, it's Agar. Yeah. Okay, or fantastic. Agar. Agar. <laughs> um, and, and his writings have been considered divinely inspired. And what they've done is they've added it to the Proverbs that they've already had passed down. So what we have with Proverbs is that actually it's been added to like this is um has been a fluid work for a couple of hundreds of years where people have recognized different bits that have been divinely inspired and and added them to it which i think is really cool um and we yeah. had the same thing sorry yeah what were you going to say so to that it's the case that um during the the exile quite a lot of this mm. work was happening uh, i don't know if you've mm. read much or thought much about that uh, I, I think i think i recall something along those lines the exile was quite a key period for pulling together some of the Old Testament scripture. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the exile is a really, or the post-exilic, or the, yeah, exilic, post-exilic period is really, really key. In fact, actually quite a lot of the books that we have uh, in the Hebrew Bible were compiled, pulled together um, at that point. Um, for example, there's, there's some evidence that... Um, Actually, this is just before the exile, but there's some evidence that the Torah, so the the five first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, were kind of compiled, put together around um, the exilic period, maybe slightly before. um, And they used like a variety of different sources. So this is one theory. And I think this is the really important thing to highlight is that these are theories. We it's very difficult to say with absolute certainty because obviously it's just so far in the past. Um, but there's quite a popular uh, theory amongst biblical scholars that the Torah was compiled using four or more different sources, which they've um, given names to, and you can kind of identify different elements of those sources in the Torah as we have it, and that they've compiled it and made it um, hundreds of years later into the works that we know today. Mm-hmm. Now, I am just going to point out, this does go against the, the rabbinic tradition, which which credits Moses with writing the Torah as we find it. So there is obviously some disagreement. And as I said, these are theories, but there does seem to be evidence of um, writer, Jewish writers using and um, being divinely inspired to use older sources to, to compile the books at a later date. Um, what I was wondering, because I've, yeah, been thinking about this a, a bit, and um, yeah, something I find really interesting. But what I just want to check with you, Oz, is what do you think about this? Do you think that compiling sources at a later date using older elements, do you think that's a problem for us as, as Christians if if these books are, um, yeah, they've been, they've been formed in this way. Is it a problem? Um, I don't think so necessarily, because if God in, is sovereign and providentially ensuring that uh, he is um, 
inspiring people, then he can do that whether in one occasion through one prophetic word that forms a prophetic book um, or the commandments, um, a portion of, of Exodus Deuteronomy, um, or through a group of people who are turning to the, uh, the the words of Moses, the events of the Exodus, the the early yeah, books of the Bible to helpfully compose um, yeah, a collection of books for the benefit of the Jewish community. And I think this is where remembering the covenant community is really helpful, that this wasn't just about the, the, the individuals. We like to make heroes, don't we? Yes, mm-hmm. Moses was... Uh, was someone God used incredibly, and, and Abraham before him, and and others since. But actually, there was a there was a system amongst the covenant community that was maybe we overlook the the, the Levites, the priests, the scribes, mm. the, the the teachers of the law, as it were, and um, for God to work through them for the benefit of the covenant community, Israel, the people of God. Um, kind of that's something that I can, yeah hold to mm, yeah definitely I mean I I completely agree and and just to to add to that um and to pull back in that that uh, passage from Timothy that actually these have all been found to be really impactful in people's lives God has worked through these works like they are um they've proven over and over again to 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 be divinely inspired and to to be applicable to our lives um yeah, here and now. So yeah, I, I completely disagree. I don't uh, disagree. I completely agree. Um, I don't think we should be at all worried. Um, yeah, that these, these sources are compiled, yeah, using humans. Um, so yeah, that's great. Um, and the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Bible becomes, uh, fixed possibly around 200 BC. So the, the successive line of prophets ends. This is when God, um, goes a little bit quiet. And it, it seems to be kind of around this point that, um, the consensus, the Jewish consensus is that, yeah, this is the Hebrew Bible. These are the works that are authoritative, that are divinely inspired. Now, I'm just going to go on a slight tangent um, because you might have heard the terms apocrypha and deuterocanonical, um, which again, another great word. Um, I just want to, ex- yeah, I just want to explore that a little bit because, yeah, you hear these words thrown around quite a lot, um, maybe apocrypha more than deuterocanonical. Um, and so, yeah, let's just pause there for a second because this is when these books come in. So if I say the apocrypha to you, Oz, do you, do you know what? The apocryphas, have you come across it much? Yes, certainly. So there's a selection of books that aren't deemed to be um, inspired, authoritative um, in the way that we would understand. However, um, aspects of the church, the Catholic church, um, Orthodox church would include them in their canon of scripture. Um, And they are, yeah, writings that can be edifying, beneficial, um, they're not necessarily heretical, uh, but they they aren't deemed or weren't weren't seen by uh, the, those writers in the New Testament and the apostles, from what we can gather, to be sources that were quoted in our New Testament. So not included in Scripture or the whole canon of Scripture today. Yeah, that's that's perfect. So these are, are works that are written um, from around two hundred BC to 
to AD 100. So they're written in what is called the Second Temple Period. Um, and that literally just refers to the fact that the Israelites have gone back to Jerusalem. They've built the Second Temple. Um, and so, yeah, if I'm ever referring to Second Temple Period, that's what we mean. And they're, they're highly respected in the synagogue, these works, um, but they are not um, considered canonical in the same way. Um, at this point, and then, yeah, as by the New Testament writers, they don't reference the the Apocrypha. And often they're um, historical. So you've got 1 and 2 Maccabees. Um, yeah, there's additions to Esther and Daniel. And uh, Judith is another kind of historical one. And then you've got some more wisdom writings, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus. Um, I mean, there's, there's more. I'm not going to go through and, and list them. But what is... Oh, yeah. What were you going to say, Oz? Just suddenly remembered. I think in the, uh, the the in Jude there is actually a reference just to go back. Oh, that's right. To, there is to Enoch, isn't there? And and so there there's a passing reference to some of these mm. sources. But yeah, carry on. Yeah, that's yeah. Just something I I, that's I very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Enoch is definitely included, which, um, which actually demonstrates mm. a a. a awareness of another pool of writings that weren't included in the entirety of, of our Bibles today, but were beneficial and, and, and known in the culture of the day. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a writer called Josephus who is writing, he's a, a Jewish writer, he's writing around AD 37 to 100. Um, and I'm going to Think I think I'll probably mention him in the reliability and accuracy one because he was a historian, um, a Jewish historian writing about the Roman, um, yeah, writing in Roman times, and so he's really really important. So remember remember his name. But he writes and spells it out for us. He kind of talks about that um, these these works are um, a complete history of of the Jewish people of the Jewish nation. But he writes that they've not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records. Um, and he links this to the fact that the prophets have ended. So these these works are, are written outside of of the line of the prophets. He's recognising that God is, is not speaking to his people in that way. So these are important texts. They tell histories. They tell um, of how, yeah, God might have been working, but they're not divinely inspired to the same extent. Is it also fair to say that that we probably come across examples of this through the the narratives in the Old Testament as well? So take someone like the prophet Elijah, clearly mm. a prophet that did a lot of prophesying and ministry beyond this the narrative record that we have in Kings. Uh, there's no book of Elijah. Um, mm. He was a prophet. He but but not all his um, ministry was recorded in the same way that not every single but so God, again, in his inspiring of humans to write and record, um, there's there's almost this overarching editing process, isn't there, that, that God oversees and enables so that we uh, as people that want to live under God's um, plan for salvation know what we need to know rather than have everything. And I guess heaven is a chance to catch up with Elijah about a bunch of the other things that he said and taught um, because he didn't get a book. For example, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that's really true. Um, one and one thing I would say, I think you kind of maybe touched on it when you said that these are, these can be edifying. Is that actually I'd really encourage um, 
Christians today to, to read some of these and yeah not to approach it as like oh this is going to be heresy or not to approach it like okay well these should have been included in the bible but they actually these books can often really inform our readings of other texts so for example yeah as you pointed out actually Enoch and, and Jude um but I was actually thinking specifically of of um one and two Maccabees like some of the history that happens in those books are really interesting when or really interesting to know because they help us understand some of the visions that Daniel sees, um, which are kind of predictions of of those events. So if if we have a, a vague understanding of those books, it, it can actually help us with the the canonical books that we have in our Bibles. Now, I just want to mention two translations at this point that are kind of important. So around 330 BC. So this is after the Jews have been sent back to Jerusalem. About Jerusalem, sent back to Jerusalem. This is about a hundred years after Nehemiah. Um, you have the conquest of Alexander the Great, um, who is Greek, and this is the spread of the the Greek Empire. And yeah, he just conquered everything in in that area of the world. And because of this, you have uh, the spread of of Koine Greek. And that becomes a really common language. And so what you see is is a new translation, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And and to be fair, this includes the apocryphal writings. Um, And it's called the Septuagint. So I think we mentioned it earlier. It's also referred to the LXX, um, which is the Roman numerals for 70. Um, And it's an important translation because it was very wide, like readily available and it is the translation that most of the New Testament authors are using. Um, so we kind of referred to this, yeah, just a minute ago, but they had, um, yeah, their translations would have included the Apocrypha. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they held those books to the same standard as the, as the rest of the Hebrew Bible, right? from what Josephus says like there seems to be some recognition that um these works yeah aren't authoritative in the same way but the new testament writers would have had um access to it which i think is is quite a key point and and good for us to remember yeah so when when we imagine synagogues up and down israel um uh, at the time of, of jesus and, and before as well after this would have been one of the sources that would have been read when they pulled out Isaiah um, 53 or whatever, uh, as Jesus did and various other people did. You would have a reader, wouldn't you? So you're saying that they'd be reading the Greek version of the Hebrew. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, so just bear that in mind as we we talk about the, the New Testament. Um, and the, the other translation that I just want to throw in there, and um, we won't spend long talking about it, but it's the Vulgate, um, which is the Latin translation, which is used by the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And this translation comes a lot, lot later. So this is way into um, after Christ. This is in the fourth century AD. Um, and it's yeah, it's translated into Latin because Latin is becoming the, or Latin is the the widespread language at that time. Um, it's the lat, it's the language of the church, and again, it includes the apocrypha, but it makes clear that they're not canonical, that they are helpful, but they are not to be given the same authority as the the other books. Um, 
yeah or at least that's the case at first and then it kind of it does change actually we're not going to go into the history of all of that but um yeah in the, in the 1500s they do actually decide that the apocrypha are canonical um and equally authoritative so it's, it's an ongoing process but it's worth noting that that is why the translation is slightly different for the roman catholic church why some books are included in the the catholic bible um that are a bit different to to ours and and just i guess to highlight the the apocrypha is actually um yeah not things we should be afraid of or scared of they may not have the same authority um but yeah they are, have been included and they have been edifying in certain situations Wow, that's really helpful. Uh, uh, thanks so much, Nicola. Why don't, why don't we turn our mind now to the New Testament then and think a bit about uh, yeah, how they, the, the New Testament uh, books have come together and why we should accept them. And yeah, so what have you got to kind of encourage us with in this in this area? Okay, yeah, so the the New Testament works. So we have, um, in some ways, a lot more evidence, uh, just because they're closer to us in time, about how these books were written, but specifically how um, the books were recognised as as being, yeah, authoritative, divinely inspired. Um, So just a bit of background to start off with. The 27 books of the New Testament are written between... AD 49 and 95, more or less. I mean, yeah, let's not be too pedantic, but they're written around that time. And they are probably written in this order. So they're probably written, the letters are probably written first, Paul's letters in particular. Um, and then the Gospels are written um, later. And yeah, I kind of touched on this earlier, but the Paul's letters are probably not written just him in a room sitting down like the word of God comes on him and he scribes actually it's probably a much more um, complex process with drafts being written um, a group of people speaking in and I mean we see this in in the letters themselves he he says this person's with me this person's with me um, we see yeah almost different people getting a voice at one point um I think it's in Peter actually I should have written this down but um a scribe pops up and says hello from the scribe um and then kind of fades away again and um I'm not gonna yeah talk a huge huge amount about this but I'd really 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 recommend um the Bible Project do a fantastic podcast um which is specifically looking at the letter writing process in the in the ancient world um, and perhaps I'll highlight that at, at the end um, just again to remind you but they kind of go into the way that scribes were used parchment and and kind of pull together this conclusion um, that actually Paul is not writing alone this is God's God's word from a collective of people now after the letters we get the the gospels and uh, these are kind of um, yeah, I guess they're slightly more historical, aren't they? Like they're explaining, <clears throat> they're explaining, you know, the events of Jesus's life um, from a theological perspective. And uh, so you've got Mark being written first, then Matthew and Luke. And the idea is that uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke are all based on uh, another source, possibly this document that we've labelled Q. Um, and that they've drawn elements from this source that we've we've lost. 
In addition, they are also drawing on this really strong oral tradition, the idea that these stories are being passed down by word of mouth. And I think sometimes that can be used to discredit um, these these events that are written down in the Gospels. People can say, well, you know, obviously people forget and, you know, they don't include the right things and stories change over time. But it is really actually important to remember that this is in a culture that had a strong oral tradition. Um, as in, memorization was a really key part of education, particularly religious education. So the, the Jewish boys would be going to the temple and would be memorizing teachings, like, because, you know, they, they didn't have lots of copies of the, the Torah, of the Tanakh, to pass around to everyone. They had to learn it by rote. And in fact, we have evidence that um, sort of revered Jewish rabbis would be able to quote like the entire Old Testament, which is insane. Like, it is amazing, isn't it? Wow, we we struggle with a few verses here and there, don't we? Yeah, so, incredible. I mean, there's your challenge, Oz. The entire <laughs> Old Testament. Wow. Um, yeah, I think I'll take a, a small book of the Bible first if I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to. Um, don't think I'm yeah. gifted. <laughs> So memorization is a really key point. And again, it was really common for disciples to learn their rabbi's main teachings um, and to learn it by rote so they can then go and share it with other people. So actually, it shouldn't come as a surprise that uh, the Gospels, um, particularly Mark, Matthew and Luke, are using a mixture of, uh, yeah, a written source that we don't have access to, but also these um, oral stories that are being told, that are being passed down. Um, and our, and yeah, that they themselves had had sort of memorized. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk in I think the reliability and accuracy side a little bit more about how those gospels are written because they're a really key part of thinking about um, accuracy and reliability. Um, so I'm gonna just pause that a little bit and because we're gonna yeah talk about that later and and maybe think more about how these works were kind of pulled together and recognized as as God's um word. So to do that, Oz, would you mind reading from 2 Peter for me? So 2 Peter 3 15. Okay, it says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Fantastic. So it's that phrase, the wisdom that God gave him, that is really, really key here. So Peter is recognising that Paul's letters are already um, out about in circulation, and he's recognising that that wisdom is divinely inspired. So at the time that Paul was writing, people were recognising that this, this is from God, like, this is a big, big deal. And actually, there's evidence that there was a widespread acceptance among the early churches that the four Gospels, Acts and the letters of Paul are authentically God's words. Um, they recognise this very, very soon. Um, a guy called um, Justin Martyr, he was writing in AD 100 to AD 165. So, yeah, like 100 years after Jesus' is, is death. He, talks about all four gospels acts and some of the the letters of paul being read every sunday in worship at the church alongside the old testament that these these are held up to be yeah this is the real thing um from a very 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 early um stage 
Wow. So we've got this 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 body of literature, you could say, that is seen to be inspired, has been um, penned by by the apostles um, and those closest to Jesus. And actually, they even within them, they're referencing to the wisdom um, of of Paul or uh, as the Lord said, or I give you a command in the Lord's or phrases that demonstrate authority, inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and obviously in the Gospels we get as it was written uh, and it was written to fulfill and this this fulfills so there's there's this sort of link between the Old Testament the New Testament and within the New Testament about the authority and the um, not just the credibility and reliability but actually the inspiration of of these these books yeah definitely and they are very much seen Mainly. yeah as you said yeah. like a fulfillment of the old testament a continuation on of that story of god's great redemptive plan of jesus kingdom um and so yeah at the close of the first century uh, you've got churches reading collecting copies of the works but what is really important to just bear in mind is that actually very few churches would have had all of these letters it's going to take a while before they become widespread before everyone has a copy um and so, yeah, the churches were slightly limited in their New Testament literature. Um, and it does mean that the first theology is kind of developed using um, the, the Pauline epistles and gospel sources. And it is also just worth pointing out here that it's not necessarily all straightforward. Um, so you might have noticed I haven't really mentioned some of the the other books. I mean, um, yeah, you've got the, the letters from John, the letters from James, um, you've got Jude. um, And actually, there is evidence that some of these ones that we would even consider, um, yeah, canonical, that they're they're in our Bibles, we trust them. Um, There's some evidence that actually, uh, writers in, in the second century AD, um, and maybe even the third century AD are kind of still discussing whether these these books um should be considered part of of yeah canon part of god's word which is it's quite interesting there was it wasn't necessarily straightforward with all of the books so for example oregon who's writing in like 250 ad um disputes he doesn't completely reject but he he's not sure about two and three john two peter james or jude um he's yeah he's not sure it's not it's not a completely straightforward um process so so then at some point um afterwards not long afterwards we know that the the canon of scripture kind of was almost agreed not that it was imposed by the people that sort of signed these books off because they were um uh, yeah accepted by the community the covenant community the church by sufficient uh, people to to be known to be authoritative inspired word of god um but there were also some other more rejected works weren't there not just a bit disputed um and uh, so so what what are they and how do we need to be a bit more aware of some of the um controversy around them i think of films like and books like the da vinci code (laughs) and and other things you know talk about that a moment yeah okay so there are these these works um often called like the gnostic gospels um yeah and and other 
yeah, other works that are emerging around this time, uh, normally in the second century uh, AD. And you've got things like The Shepherd of Hermes, Apocalypse of St. Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, the Deashi, and then the very famous Gospel of Thomas. You've got the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, um, Gospel of, of Philip. And yeah, these are Gnostic works. So that's um, a her- heretical sect that kind of arises around this time. And yeah, I mean, we could talk about the, these these works for for ages but for example i'm just going to pick up the gospel of thomas because it is the one that is used in the da vinci code um, and obviously is, is slightly more famous and this was written about ad 150 and it only existed in fragments until 1945 when actually there was a big um discovery of of texts um of Gnostic writings where we finally got the text in its full form. And um, these are called the Nag Hammadi texts. And um, some scholars have then used this to argue that Thomas is authentic gospel. It reflects early church beliefs in a non-divine Jesus because that is what it presents, a Jesus that is just man. Um, and that fact, actually, um, a scholar called Pagels claims that John, the gospel of John is written later to refute um, the gospel of Thomas, um, to kind of that divine status for Jesus is something that has emerged over time rather than being recognized straight away. Um, but what is um, important for us to remember is that actually these writings are condemned by the early church fathers from the offset, um, that they're recognized, um, as heretical, um, that they are, yeah, rejected. They're, they're, they're never in dispute. So some of the, the works, as we've discovered in our Bible, were disputed. These works were not disputed. They were rejected um, completely. And actually, there is very little evidence that Thomas was written before John. It's far more likely that it's it's the other way around. Um, but be, because of this, um, yeah, these, these heretical ideas, these heretical works that are being... Um, put out these Gnostic Gospels um, and other works that, again, not divine, but might be helpful. But the church has needed a bit more of a criteria for the canon. So they've started to think more about authorship for widespread acceptance and use. Um, and again, confirmation to this gospel tradition um, that they yeah held to the Pauline letters, they held to the Gospels, and they kind of compared these later works um, to it and saw that actually yeah the Gnostic Gospels don't match up so we are gonna um, completely reject them um, and yeah so we, we do have these these other works that are kind of thrown around um, yeah and they're not they're not all heretical so that the the Gnostic Gospels are heretical but some of the other works that I mentioned first like um, the Apocalypse of St Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, the Daesh, from what I understand um, some of them might have had been been helpful but i mean i but one definitely were not considered as edifying and definitely weren't considered um canonical in the same way all right that's that's really helpful oh thank you nicole just mm. as we we wrap up um so mm. we know that then in in the west the canon was considered closed by the end of the fourth century ad roughly after mm. various council meetings and um some of the the, the criteria that you you listed but all of this we need to remember is within god's kind of plan to provide written uh, books for us to to have as um as a as a point of 
um, a source to to see who God is, to grow in understanding. So what for you, what what difference does knowing all this make? This is an area that really interests you. This is in your closing comments. Um, anything else you'd like to to mention, but also what real difference does does this stuff make? Why is this so important for you? I think it's a couple of the things that we've actually already touched on a bit. Um, so one of the things that I find so encouraging is the way that God really uses humans in preserving his word, that this is not, um, yeah, this is not something that he's just kind of given to us, we've got nothing to do with, but actually the way that God is in his graciousness partnering with us to to give us um, these words, these, these um yeah, these stories of how God is relating to us, how it's, you know, all pointing to Jesus and explaining God's purpose for, yeah, humankind. Um, but he doesn't do that in a dictatorial way. Like he he invites us to kind of um, be part of that. And I think the, the Bible being formed in this way really demonstrates that. Um, and, and the other thing that I just find so encouraging about this, and yeah, I'd quite like to, to end on this thought is that, um, particularly in the New Testament, one of the other th- the criteria that the um, yeah that the early church use is that um, is that which of these texts can we see God working through today? Um, the the effect of the text on people's lives was one of the key criteria. Um, And Thompson has this great quote that what is particularly noteworthy of of the process of making books canonical is that most of these texts functioned authoritatively because of their formative rather than the epistemic role. So it's not about the knowledge, that's what epistemic epistemic means, it's not about the knowledge, um, head knowledge that they provide, these are about words that have authority because they impact us they form us and and I just think it's incredible to think of all of those people throughout history who've read these texts and God has worked through them through these texts this is a very real alive book um and I just think that's awesome and and seeing that is is really cool that's tremendous and it says in Hebrews 4 doesn't it the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword so I think that's a really fitting note to finish with thank you so much Nicole thank you for joining us on postcards from Antioch today and I hope you have a good week and hope you can join us next time for the next topic that we cover Um, so thank you Nicole thank you everyone and God bless